<laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Get that out of my way. Yes. Enough snares in this life. Yeah. <laughs> Bless you. Aren't we blessed to have the musicians we have at TCF? John was an old man. He was the only one of the original 12 apostles that was still living. Judas, overwhelmed with shame over having betrayed his Lord, had committed suicide. In a prayer meeting, Matthias had been chosen to replace him. But now they had all been killed because of their faithful witness for Jesus Christ. Only John, the son of Zebedee, remained. Many stories circulated about what had happened to them. We know for certain that John's brother James was the first martyr. He was beheaded, the first of the apostles to be a martyr, beheaded by Herod. Peter had been crucified upside down on a cross in Rome. Paul, although not one of the original twelve, was the one that Jesus had called to be the apostle of the Gentiles, and he had been beheaded in Rome. Various stories circulated about Andrew. One was that he had gone to the distant portions of the Roman Empire to Britain, even, yes, among those wild Scots, and there had died as he had proclaimed the gospel. Another story about him is that, well, he really went down along the Dnieper River among the Slavs, and there he died. Matthew, taking the gospel to India, had been thrust through with a spear while he was in prayer. One by one, all of them in obedience to the command of Jesus Christ, to go make disciples of all the nations, to immerse them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, going forth in obedience to that great commission, one by one, they had paid with their lives for their faithfulness. And only John, the son of Zebedee, remained. Emperor Domitian had exiled John to the Isle of Patmos. The conditions were very severe. And he thought, well, this is an old man. I'll send him to that island, and those severe conditions will cause him to die. But John had not died. He had survived in a cave that today is known as the Cave of the Apocalypse. And there the Lord Jesus had appeared to him and given him the text of what we know as the book of Revelation. It contained five letters, or rather seven letters to the churches that surrounded the region of Ephesus. And then he had been released and had returned to Ephesus. Ephesus, a wonderful place for John. This was a loving church. It was a church that had been established by the Apostle Paul and his companions. And this church had warmly received for several years now, John, even before his exile, and he thought about the life he'd lived. Sixty-four years prior to this time, he had stood at the foot of the cross 
and watch Jesus Christ die for the sins of the world. He recalled that from the cross Jesus had looked down at Mary and said, Woman, behold your son. And then had looked at him and said, Son, behold your mother. And from that time on he had taken Mary as if she were his own mother. She had been with him in Ephesus prior to the exile, but now Mary, that woman blessed above all other women, also was gone. John was the only one left upon the earth of that original intimate circle that surrounded the Lord Jesus Christ. John thought about Paul. How diligent Paul had been to refute the various heresies and false doctrines about Jesus that had been spread. How he had effectively turned back the Judaizers and protected the gospel truths about Jesus and the church from these individuals. Paul had succeeded. And Judaism no longer was a threat. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was gone. The Palestine that John had known as a boy no longer existed. And now he was living in Ephesus, a Gentile city dedicated to the goddess Diana. But through the efforts of Paul, the Holy Spirit had moved forward and a vibrant church now existed in that city. And this was John's church home. He found special delight in the companionship of the young men who just seemed to love to sit around him hour by hour and listen to him tell stories about Jesus, what Jesus had said, what he had done, about his miracles. Two of them he saw as men who have tremendous potential, Papias and Polycarp. He looked at these men and thought, these men have the potential to someday be significant leaders in the church. And indeed they, indeed they did so become that. And yet the old man was not at peace. He was not at peace because even though the Judaizers no longer were a threat, now new threats had arisen. The gospel, the church, had largely become a Gentile church. And with that had entered into it various uh, Gentile and Greek challenges to theology and various thinkings and philosophies were beginning to affect those who were followers of Jesus. Two especially were a challenge in Ephesus. One was Nicholas and the other was Serentius. And these men already had gathered groups around them and they had formed as a virtual sex within the church itself. These men had strange views about Jesus. Some of them said, well, because all flesh is evil and all spirit is good, then Jesus could not have existed in the flesh. Maybe he caused you to see visions. He was some sort of a hologram, but Jesus did not live in the flesh. Others said, well, really, Jesus was just the son of Mary and Joseph. He was a man. But when he came to John, and John immersed him, and the Holy Spirit came and rested upon him, and then the Holy Spirit stayed on him until he went to the cross, and then the Holy Spirit left. 
He was just a man and died as a man. Some of the roaming Jewish rabbis were spreading another story that while Mary was betrothed to Joseph, she had had an affair with a Roman soldier, an archer who was named Tiberius Abites Penteras. And Joseph, being a kind man, not wanting to expose her, had put her away and finally they had married. In other words, Jesus was the bastard son of Mary and a Roman soldier. And John was alarmed and grieved as he saw these heretical teachings gaining ground in the precious church at Ephesus. What could be done? He thought about Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, directed toward the Jews, originally written in Aramaic and later translated into Greek. He thought about Peter's account of the life of Jesus that he had imparted to John Mark and John Mark had written, aimed toward the Roman world. He thought about Luke who had never seen Jesus, the Gentile physician who had followed Paul, who had been so diligent in interviewing those who had seen Christ and wrote down by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what he had learned. And yet, he realized that the style and content of these marvelous writings was not adequate to meet the challenges at his time being faced in the church. Not only that, but none of these accounts contained the words that Jesus had spoken about the paraclete, the Holy Spirit who is going to call the apostles to remember everything Jesus said and the things they didn't understand. He was going to explain it so they could present that truth and how he was going to protect that truth. John realized that that was truth that needed to be imparted. Clement of Alexander, a generation later, wrote this. John, last of all, conscious that the bodily facts had been set forth in those Gospels, was urged on by his disciples and divinely moved by the Holy Spirit, composed a spiritual Gospel. And thus John, moved by the Holy Spirit, urged by those around him who realized the threat to the church, composed what we know as the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John. Toward the end of that memoir, he wrote this, explaining why he wrote it. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. And in the prologue, to his memoir, John, that we know as John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, John hit head-on the heresies that were facing the Ephesian church. Well, once again, we're facing a bunch of heresies, aren't we? 
strange teachings, aberrant teachings, whether it's in a book, on the History Channel, on the uh, Discovery Channel, or some uh, Christian television station, there are various and many challenges to the truths about Jesus Christ. Now, it's been 13 years since John 1, 1 through 18 has been used as a text for a sermon from this pulpit. This morning we do well to listen to John's answer to the question, Who is Jesus? John begins, In the beginning was the Word. Now, that might seem strange terminology to us, Word. And the Greek word that is so rendered word is the term logos. Now, logos incipiently agree, uh, refers to a thought, to a concept, to reason, whether expressed or not. A thought, a concept, a reason. And John, as he was writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was writing to a culture that had taken that term and given it special philosophical, in some cases, religious meaning. Some use the term to refer to the unknown plan or design that was just behind all things. Perhaps today we might use the term fate to think of the way that some use that term. To the Gnostics, it referred to the mind or power that was behind the order of the universe. To some, the term was used to refer to that unknown God. Remember in Acts 17, Paul said, I've traveled about your city, I see all your temples, to all these gods, and there's one to an unknown God. I'm going to declare to you who he is. Some said, that must be the Logos. I've tried to think of some contemporary situation might be close. Now, if, if, if John were writing to a group of those who were, shall we say, addicted to Star Wars, and he was writing to a group of Trekkies who are accustomed to hearing uh, Skywalker say, The Force be with you, John would write, In the beginning was the Force. Because that's really the sense in which that word was used. So he took this vague concept of Greek philosophers, the Logos, as the vehicle through which he would define Jesus Christ. You speak of the Logos, let me explain to you the identity of this Logos. In the beginning, what did he mean? By in the beginning. Well, most of us naturally think of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But if you were a Gnostic philosopher, you'd have a different idea. See, the Gnostic philosophers said first there was the autopater, the only existing being. And the autopater had a thought, and the thought was a noose. And every noose became a being, and every being thought, and every... Uh, being thought became a noose, and every noose became a being, and it went on and on. And finally there was a noose who was Sophia, and Sophia had a noose, and the noose she, she created by her thinking created all physical matter. And in time that 
Moose came to be called the Demiurge and the Autopater, the Urge. And the Demiurge created all physical matter and that's all evil. The Autopater, the Urge, created only spirit and that's all good. So, if one be a Greek philosopher, you might say in the beginning, that refers to Autopater. <laughs> Some might look to Genesis 1.1. Some might, might say, well, I believe in the hypothesis of uniformitarianism, and that means, therefore, that the universe is 13.77 billion years old. Whichever of these you hold to, <laughs> whatever you consider to the beginning, the Logos already was. What a startling truth. So John begins by declaring the pre-incarnate existence of the Logos. The Logos was God. Kai halogos ein pros ton theon. The word translated with in most of our versions is the Greek term pros. Now, this is a preposition. It can have various meanings, depending, of course, upon the context and noun to which is attached and so on. But here it seems to be used in the way that Paul used it when he wrote 1 Corinthians 13, 12, in which he said, We now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Prosopon, pros, posopon face to face. Picture that. From time eternity, before the beginning, the Logos was face to face with God. A relationship implying intercourse between the two of them. Now I could have used the preposition meta, which means with, or para, which means alongside, but he used cross, which defines a very special relationship between the Logos and God. And the word was God. Kai theos ein halogos. The word was God. Now in Greek there is no definite, indefinite article such as we have in English. The word a, like a man, or an, an apple. <laughs> There's no indefinite article. And so Jehovah's Witnesses and others who seek to deny the uniqueness of Jesus render this phrase, and the word was a God, because there is no article in front of Theos, God. F.F. Bruce wrote about these people. Here's what he wrote. These people who emphasize that the true rendering of the last clause of John 1, 1 is the word was a God, proved nothing thereby except their ignorance of Greek grammar. <laughs> Bruce's words, not mine. Picture this. If both Logos and Theos did not have the definite article, then it would mean Logos equals God and God equals Logos, speaking of one being. 
If both had had the definite article, Hologos, Hotheos, the God, the Word, the same thing would be true. But that's not what the Greek has. It has the definite article in front of Logos and not Theos, which means the Word was God. Speaking of his deity, he is God but not all of God. And of course that fits our concept of the Trinity, does it? God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. All things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In these last days, God has spoken to us, the book of Hebrews says, in his Son, who is appointed heir of all things, notice, through whom he made the world. Paul wrote to the Colossians in 1.16, By him all things were created, speaking of Jesus, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And so when we read in Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The Logos was involved. He was a participant, perhaps the key participant in the creation of all things, including angels and the physical world. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Our mind quickly rushes to Paul's description of that event. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God and did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The Word became flesh. John now moves from that pre-incarnate existence to the incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word that's rendered dwelt is the Greek word skenao, which means to spread your tent. Think of that. (laughs) Think of a bunch of nomads who are wandering about, and every place they go, they stop a while by some oasis or somewhere and pitch their tents. Temporary dwellings. Really, that's what all of us are doing in this world, aren't we? Temporary dwellings, and so we pitch our tent. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus is pictured and coming into our camp where we have our tent spread in somewhat of a crude circle, and he erects his tent in our circle. What an interesting thought, a beautiful thought. 
as he tents among us. Paul, remember, as he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 about our earthly tent, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, so on. While we're in this tent, we groan, being burned. Never thought about this. Life seems to consist of either being in a problem, coming out of a problem, or going into a problem. <laughs> in this tent, we groan. So in this life, we exist in our temporary dwelling and the Logos for a season tented among us. And while he was here, he shared the life that all of us experience in this earthly tent. He knew hunger. He knew weariness. He knew joy. He knew sorrow. He was loved. He was hated. He was thirsty. He was hungry. And when the urge came upon him, he found a latrine. He lived life as we live it, except for one thing. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Ever thought about this? Jesus Christ never used his supernatural power for his own benefit. You remember when Satan tempted him as he's hungry, he said, turn these stones to bread, you can do it. Jesus said, ha, we're to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now I've tried to think, is there any time in the gospel records that record an episode in which Jesus used his supernatural power for his own benefit? I can think of one. After he'd been up on the mountain to pray and the apostles had gotten in a boat and were rowing across the lake and Jesus wanted to meet up with them, he could have walked all the way around and hopefully by the next day met him or he could have swam across the lake. Instead, he walked on the water. So I suppose choosing to walk on the water instead of swimming across the lake perhaps means he used supernatural power for his own benefit. But you do not see our Lord exempting himself for what it was like to be one who tents among us. Now all the speculations that the seekers of God had about what is God like didn't need to speculate anymore. Jesus was there. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken unto us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world, and, speaking of Jesus, He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by word of his power. 
You want to see what God the Father's like? What God the Creator's like? Look at Jesus. Some people say, well, it's trite to say that we can love the sinner and hate the sin. Yet Jesus did. Also, we're living in a day in which nobody wants to say anybody is a bad person. Jesus had no problem with that. He clearly spoke of some as evil. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. While he tended among us, he showed the character, the person, the heart of God. He came into his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now first let me note an interesting thing. John never uses in any of his writings the term son or sons of God for us. Matthew does once when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be called children of God. Luke does once when he says, In the resurrection we'll be sons of God. But John never uses that terminology. He speaks of us as children of God. But son of God he reserves uniquely for Jesus Christ. The right to become children of God. The word right is a Greek word exousia. Exousia has the idea of having authority within oneself, but you only have it because it's been given to you. And really, I think it's unfortunate that King James rendered it power because to our mind that brings something different. But it really means you have the authority, you have the right to do something. In this case, to become something. But having that right doesn't guarantee it. Believing in Jesus is not enough. Notice, for example, in John 12, 42, many of the rulers believed in him. But the Pharisees were not confessing him, for they feared be, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Notice that? They believed, but wouldn't confess him. And Jesus said, Whoever confesses me before me, and him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. And whosoever denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father in heaven. So these people who believed in Jesus but would not confess him will be denied before the Father who is in heaven. In this passage, again, we see the sovereignty of God. Now, you know, for much of my life, I was totally committed to the concept of man's unhindered free will, that it's all up to the person. But I have to say, in the last decade or more, I no longer hold that view, because over and over and over in Scripture, I see the sovereignty of God. It is God that opens the heart. We think of Lydia, to whom Paul preached, and it says, The Lord opened her heart that she might respond to the things that Paul was teaching. I cannot, 
through intellectual activity, convince someone who is an unbeliever, God has to open the heart for it all to make sense. But once the heart is opened, then the will has to be exercised, whether or not to step into the kingdom or to not do so. I might illustrate it this way. If I gave a key to my house to my daughter Diana or Greg or Jimmy or John or Mark or maybe Ed and Nancy, they'd have now, by my giving them that key, the right to enter my house. But you know, they could walk around forever with a key in their pocket and never use it, (laughs) and they'd never be in my house. Enter my house, they have to step to the door, take out the key, put in the lock, turn it, open the door, and go in. Belief that the Holy Spirit brings upon us as he opens our heart is like that key. We, however, then have to respond and move forward to enter the house. Well, we ask, okay, how do we do that? Well, remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He said, he who knew no sin became sin in our behalf. Yes, but how do we do that? He said, uh, narrow is the gate. the gate that leads the path to life, but broad is the gate that leads to death and many that go in thereat. But how do we find that narrow way? What do we do? The apostles, beginning with the day of Pentecost onward, modeled this response. Repent, each of you, Be immersed in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what you anticipate happening. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee that heaven is yours. You've used the key and you've walked in to the kingdom. You know, most Sundays when we speak, we just assume that everybody here has accepted Jesus and is in the kingdom, that probably is a mistake. And this morning, we don't want to make that mistake. If you are here today, and God at some point in your life, perhaps even this morning, has opened your heart, and you believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, And you know that the only way to heaven is through the cross. And we're going to invite you today to come and confess your faith in Jesus Christ before this audience. We're going to be having baptisms this morning to immerse you into Jesus Christ, bury the old man and rise to walk in newness of life and know the joy of being a citizen of that kingdom. Now, we're not going to go through an invitation and sing one more verse and one more verse and one more verse. We have total disdain for all manipulation. 
but we want to give the opportunity. So let's stand, and we're just going to sing a couple of songs. And today, if you want to confess Jesus and you want to be immersed into Christ, we ask you to come while we're singing. All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. There is a fountain filled with blood, Drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all. I started that one in the wrong key too, didn't I? <laughs> Will you be seated? We're going to be preparing for the baptism service at this time. I'm going to ask parents who would like to bring the children down.